Hey, good morning. Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. You know, we gather every Sunday morning in person at 10.30 a.m. We're online, live-streamed on our website, faithonhill.com, and then the videos are also available permanently on our Facebook page. And you have the audio versions on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. You just have to search Faith on Hill. Now, we made a choice to consider the online service, you know, as like being at church. Uh, and we have people who, uh, they're homesick, they're on vacation, something like that, and they tune in. But then we have people we know who are watching online who don't gather with us normally and in person. Uh, we want you to know that you're welcomed here and that we are glad that you are here with us. And if you are watching online but you've never connected with us, uh, we'd love to hear from you. And you can email adam at faithonhill.com. we just love to hear from you, how things are going, how we can pray for you. We're continuing our study through the Gospel of Matthew. We're going to finish up chapter 12 today. You might remember that we ended last week where Jesus taught about the Sabbath, and he fought back against these uh, religious oppressors who were trying to condemn the innocent with their human-made, human-created uh, rules and regulations. And Jesus said none of that. And he, he fought back against it, and because of that, it says that they plotted to kill him. Now, <clears throat> verse 15 of chapter 12 says, because Jesus was aware of this, that's their plot to kill them, or to kill him, Jesus withdrew from that place. A large crowd gathered and followed him, and he healed all who were ill. He warned them not to tell others about him. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophet Isaiah. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one that I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will proclaim justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. No one will hear his voice in the streets. A, breeze, a bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out till he has brought justice through victory. In his name, the nations will put their hope. So what Matthew is doing is declaring Jesus is the Messiah. He is saying, hey, Jesus fulfilled the prophecies of old, identifying who the Messiah would be and what the Messiah would do. When there were people coming against him, instead of fighting back, he withdrew himself. Now, that doesn't mean that Jesus was weak or that Jesus wasn't willing he obviously went to the cross at the right time, but in that moment he said, nope, this isn't my time yet. And so he withdrew. These identifying marks, he didn't go out into the street. He didn't quarrel. He wouldn't have been a keyboard warrior in our day. Jesus was fulfilling these marks of the Messiah. And Matthew is proclaiming, he is declaring, this is the one that the prophets foretold about. And in every way that Jesus lived, and interacted, he made it clear that he was the one. So his kingdom, the Messiah, is declared. The kingdom is declared. And it's also confirmed. Because as he is there, it says that he was healing all who were ill. And then in verse 22, it says they brought him a demon-possessed man who was blind and mute, and Jesus healed him so that he could both talk and see. And all the people were astonished and said, could this be the son of David? 
So he is confirming the kingdom of heaven. He is confirming his status as Messiah. And Messiah wasn't just savior or political leader, but the Messiah was to be the king. He was to be from the line of David, the royal line. And he was the one who could come and claim the throne of Israel. So Jesus confirms his claim. First, he he makes this claim in how he taught, in what he said, in how he lived. And then he confirms this claim through a demonstration of the power of God. And then what happens? Verse 24, when the Pharisees heard this, they said, it is only by Beelzebub, the prince of demons, that this fellow drives out demons. So, He makes this declarative statement in word and in deed. He confirms his declaration, his claim to being the Messiah, his claim of the coming kingdom of heaven through action and power. And that claim and confirmation is rejected by the leaders, both political and religious, of his day. And they say, oh, You know, he's only driving out demons uh, because he has the power of the demons. He's on the side of the demons. Now, this whole thing about Beelzebub, uh, the prince of demons. uh, Jewish and and therefore biblical demonology from, from the Hebrew scriptures, the Old Testament, is not clear or coherent at points. And what I mean by that is this. The Bible does not give us a clear outline of how the spiritual realm works exactly. We understand that there is an enemy. In Genesis, he's revealed as the tempter. Uh, in, in Job, he's revealed as an accuser. We understand that there is an enemy of God. There is an enemy of God's people. Uh, the, the Old Testament prophets spoke of Lucifer who fell from heaven. And as we get into the New Testament, we get a clearer picture that this enemy, Satan, Uh, was some sort of angel who fell. And in the book of the Revelation, it indicates that when he rebelled against God, he took a third of the angels with him. And we would commonly refer to them as the demons, although to be honest, we do not 100% know that for a fact. I mean, it's one of those things that like everybody thinks is true, and the Bible hints at it and indicates it, but it doesn't outright say it. The point is that the Jews had Uh, just as we Christians now have, uh, these things that are in the Scripture, and then we have these suppositions or ideas that come with it. And and so some groups, they don't ever want to think about this, and so they don't have any idea. Like, they they don't have any sort of uh, theology around uh, demons or anything like that. And then some groups, they have all kinds of suppositions and, and traditions that have kind of mixed in, and you see that in all corners of the church, from Catholicism to hyper-Pentecostalism, like all these different groups and tight and labels. But what they're doing is they're just taking the framework that they had. They had this idea of Beelzebub, the prince of demons. Whether there's any biblical basis for that or not, it was something that had been developed in the Jewish tradition. And they said, oh, he's just operating in the power of the demons. So they are rejecting his claim. Here comes Jesus. He makes this claim of messiahship. Last week, when he said that the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of Man was a messianic title. He was ascribing that to himself. And he is saying, I am the one that is here. And in a minute, he's going to say, I am, I am the one greater than your law or your temple. It's bold claims. 
and they are rejecting it. And they say, you're only operating in this power because you have the power of the demons. So Jesus responds, it says that he knew their thoughts and said to them, every kingdom divided against itself will be ruined. Every city or household divided against itself will not stand. If Satan drives out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then can his kingdom stand? And if I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive out demons? So then they will be your judges. But it But if it is by the Spirit of God that I drive out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or again, how can anyone enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man and then plunders his house? So what he is saying is, your logic is flawed. If you think that I am doing these works, if you think that I cast out this demon because I am on the side of the demons... That makes no sense. Why would the demons then send Jesus in to be against the demons? It doesn't make any sense. He says, says, if you have power over something, uh, uh, the strong man, the idea, think about like, think about Gaston, Beauty and the Beast, uh, you know, the old Disney movie, whether it's the cartoon or the live action and the cartoon, I watched the cartoon recently, it is so good and the live action is so, yeah. Gaston, the town's strong man, the biggest in town, the most talented in town, the most athletic in town, who could stand against him? And he says, if you want to go and plunder his house, you have to first tie him up. So Jesus is saying, the reason that I can do this is because I have power superior, dominant over Some people think that the devil and God are like yin and yang. And there's the devil and he rules the underworld and there's God who's up there in heaven. And they are like equal opposite forces always at war with each other. But the Christian faith says the opposite. The Bible declares that God created all things including those creatures that rebelled against him and turned to darkness. The Bible says that God is over all things, superior to all things. Jesus had the power because the power of God is dominant over the power of the demonic. And then he actually asked him another question because the Jews to this day, but especially then, had an um, exorcist tradition. We think of exorcist, right? Uh, you know, we think of the movie maybe. Uh, if you're into horror films, I am not. I do not like scary things at all. And so I have never seen The Exorcist, but I understand that there's a priest and the whole thing. Uh, I, one of the funniest lines I've ever heard, I quote it to myself all the time, is uh, Dr. Evil uh, saying, you know, I need an old priest and a young priest because his chair is like freaking out and he can't get his mechanical evil villain chair to stop spinning. And he's like, you know, I need an old priest and a young priest to fix my chair. Like it's obviously possessed. And that's maybe what we think of. And while the the Catholic Church and other and and Christian traditions do have an exorcist uh, tradition in in some of the veins of Christianity, the Jews do as well. So Jesus is saying, hey, you have people who claim to exorcise demons, and they're your people, and you don't have any problem with them. By whose power do they do this? Because if you say that I'm doing it because I'm on the side of the devil, what about them? And they don't have an answer for him. So Jesus is warning his rejectors. He says, Moreover, who is, whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather will, with me scatters. 
And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. Put a finger on a pin there. We're going to come back to that idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit and the unpardonable sin. Bear with me. We'll get there. But then he says in verse 33, make a tree good and its fruit will be good. Make a tree bad and its fruit will be bad. For a tree will be recognized by its fruit. If a tree is healthy, it will have healthy fruit. If a tree is unhealthy, it will not produce healthy fruit. Verse 34, you brood of vipers, how can you who are evil say anything good? For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in him, and an evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up with him. But I tell you that everyone will have to give an account on the day of judgment for every empty word they have spoken. For by your words you will be acquitted, and by your words you will be condemned. Then he says in verse 38, some of the Phar- then it says, Some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want a sign. So he has warned them. He has shown them the power of God. He has warned them. And they, and they say, Hey, okay, can you give us a sign then? Can you prove to us that you're the Messiah? Can you prove to us that you are really doing this in the power of God? And the question becomes, What more do you want? What more do you want? I have known people over the years who have said, I do not believe in Jesus because of this. I cannot believe in a God who does that. And sometimes, it's a genuine reason, but often I have found that people come with a list of reasons why they will not accept Jesus, why they will not follow the Christian faith. And the truth is, the truth is it has nothing to do with that. It's a true story. Growing up in the church, one of the things you would hear a lot in the 90s was this idea that, uh, you know, I was in high school in the 90s, right? And this idea was we'd be in high school and we love Jesus. And then we'd go to college, and we would hear about evolution from a biology professor, and then all of a sudden, we wouldn't love Jesus anymore. This was a common kind of boogeyman that was out there in the church at large, in the church in general. And then, as I got old enough to be in college and, and see what was going on, I realized that I would have friends. And when Facebook and, and social media came around, it became so much clearer that you would have friends who would go to college and you would see pictures on their MySpace wall or then their Facebook, and all of a sudden, you'd see red plastic cups in their hands. And it was week, you know, weekend one before school started, right? And the, the slide into sin and rebellion had already started. And then six months later, they would say, oh, yeah, well, you know, I, you know, there's so much, I, I, went, I went and sat through Biology 101, and, you know, then maybe then it was used an ex- as an excuse for their disbelief. But really, the, the slide into sin and rebellion had already started, and the same is true for the Pharisees. What was the verse that we ended last week on? It was in verse uh, 14. It says, the Pharisees went out and plotted how they might kill Jesus. Why? Because he had pushed against their sense of superiority through laws and religious rule keeping. 
And he had said, you guys are trying to condemn the innocent so that you can feel superior, but you are not. And at that, they plotted to kill Jesus. They've already made up their mind. So Jesus is just warning them. Hey, guys, just so you are warned, just so you know, a good tree bears good fruit. A, a rotten tree will bear rotten fruit. And the fruit that you are producing is rotten. The fruit that you are producing, the end result of your religious piety, it stinks. What more do you want? They say, Jesus, can you just give us a sign? Last week, we saw how Jesus came into the synagogue and there was a man with a crippled, withered arm, and Jesus healed that arm. This week, we read about how Jesus is healing the sick, casting out demons. Somebody who could not, you know, speak, could suddenly speak. And then they say, could you give us a sign to prove that? What more do you want? And it is a fair question to people who say, I can't believe because of this, this, or that. Is that really your issue? Is that really your question? Or is it something else you've already made up your mind? And this is just the defensive perimeter you've put around yourself intellectually, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, so that you don't have to come face to face with Jesus. You know, over the years, I've had conversations with people, friends, neighbors, coworkers, whatever. And, you know, hey, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, well, I'm Jewish. What do you think about Jewish? Oh, well, I'm, uh, you know, I, I believe in science. Oh, well, what do you think about Jesus? Oh, well, I'm, I'm this or I'm that. But that's not the question. If you, I believe in science, too. Jesus was Jewish, right? But we, we put these things up as barriers so that we don't have to interact with the question. So when they come at Jesus and say, hey, can you give us a sign? What more do you want? And he is warning those who reject. Hey, you want a sign? Here's the sign. Jesus answered, a wicked and adulterous generation asked for a sign. Now, in other places in the scripture, there are those who ask God to confirm his word through some sort of sign or other confirming work, and God does not give them this answer. Again, they have already determined in their hearts their question is asked and it is not asked in authenticity or genuineness. It is just another barrier they're putting up so that they don't have to deal with who Jesus is. And Jesus says, No sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Nineveh, and you might remember this, we talked about Jonah. You can go back if you didn't catch those, and you can go back in our podcast stream from last summer when we, when we looked at the book of Jonah. Jonah went to Nineveh, which was the city that was probably the worst city in the world. Like, they were just terrible. And we talked about all of the sin and evil and injustice that was going on in that city. And Jonah was like maybe the worst preacher ever. And he went to that city, proclaimed the truth of God, and they repented. And Jesus is like, Jonah's like the worst preacher ever. And Nineveh was like the worst people ever, the most immoral people, right? And they repented. They had the worst preacher possible. They repented. And here's Jesus, the best preacher ever. And here are people who, on the surface, should have been a moral people, a holy people, God's people. 
and their religious leaders will not repent. So he's saying, hey man, the people of Nineveh will stand up in judgment because they repented and they had far less opportunity than you have. And there will be those who stand in judgment against this generation and in the same way say the opportunities that you had we could only dream of. And so Jesus warns them, what more do you want? The only sign I'm going to give you is that for three days and three nights I will be in the ground and then I will rise from the dead. And then he goes on to say, the queen of the south, verse 42, will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it for she came from the ends of the earth to listen to Solomon's wisdom and now something greater than Solomon is here. Now he's going back to their history. We talked about this last week, the data points, right? And he, gave, he goes back to their history again. And there is a, a, an account in the history of Israel where the queen of Sheba, which would have been in uh, northern eastern Africa, maybe Ethiopia or Eritrea, that region, Kenya, something like that. And this queen came to Israel because she had heard of what God was doing and she had heard about King Solomon and the wisdom that God had given him. And Jesus said she traveled from the ends of the earth back, you know, what would have been back then, and because she heard about what God was doing. And now God's doing this greater thing, and you guys don't even have to travel. That is a condemnation against them. So he's warning them. The Messiah has been declared. The Messiah has been confirmed, and you reject it. So here is the warning that you are given. Then he says this interesting thing, verse 43, when an impure spirit comes out of a person, it goes through arid places seeking rest and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to the house I left. And when it arrives, it finds the house unoccupied, sweeped, clean, and put in order. Then it goes and it takes with it seven other spirits more wicked than itself, and they go and live there. And the final condition of that person is worse than the first this is how it will be for this wicked generation. In terms of his original audience here, what Jesus is saying is, you guys had it bad. You were occupied by an evil empire. You, you have been ruled by an evil king who should not be on the throne. And God has sent the ultimate deliverer, the Messiah. And it isn't just a person but it's God himself in human flesh. And he is cleansing. And Jesus, once if not twice uh, in the Gospels, cleanses the temple. Jesus goes around healing those who are sick. He goes around delivering those who are in bondage. He does a work. And they reject him. And they crucify him. And the end result for them is worse because within the lifetime of a child living in that day, the Romans, under a general named Titus, came and destroyed the city of Jerusalem. They came and they scattered the Jewish people. Jesus warned them. You're in a bad situation. God comes and does a work. But you do not accept it. Watch out, because the second, the second time around, it'll be so much worse. Friends, I want to say this. This is real life. In our day, there are people all throughout our community who have seen the work of God. They have experienced or tasted in some way the power of God. And yet they did not fully surrender their life to Jesus. 
they did not fully surrender their life. And in the end, the second go-around of sin and rebellion will be infinitely worse than the first time. The pain and the suffering that God delivers us from, and then we do not fully surrender ourselves, and we go back, and the world and the enemy get back involved in our lives, and it is infinitely worse the second time around. There has never been a better time to surrender our lives to Jesus There has never been a better time to bow our knee, bow our hearts, and say, Lord, I want everything you have. Because this world is full of death, and it is passing away. It's not working. Look around. We're angry. We're tired. We're hurt. We know that depression is on the rise. Substance abuse is through the roof. Suicide attempts skyrocketing. It's not working. Jesus, Jesus heals, he delivers, and he saves. So he warns those who will reject, and he warns the generation who experienced Jesus and did nothing. Hey, this will be the result and the consequence. And so for those of us who grew up in the church, who were around, who were church adjacent, and then have done nothing with it. There's a warning. There's a a warning of what could come. It's not a threat. It's a warning and a plea. Surrender your life. Hey, God cleans everything out, but you don't fill it with him. He cleans everything out, but it's not replaced with Jesus. And then the evil comes back, and it's seven times worse, ten times worse, hundred times worse. Be warned. We could reject Jesus outright and deny him, or we could reject Jesus in a quiet and passive way. But either way, Jesus warns them, I've declared who I am. I've confirmed who I am. And this is what happens if you stand against me. Jesus says, those who are not with me, they're against me. You don't even have to like be somebody who's actively against Christianity. You could even say, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, I believe. But if you aren't surrendered to Jesus, you are not with him. And he clarifies this. Remember I said we're going to go back to the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit thing? He clarifies this in verse 30. Whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so I tell you, every kind of sin and slander can be forgiven, but the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. Anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or the age to come. One of the most common questions over the years as a pastor and a Bible teacher that I've received is, what's the unpardonable sin? There have been all sorts of things suggested for the unpardonable sin. By far, the most common idea for the unpardonable sin is suicide. There is nowhere in the Scripture that says that. Suicide is terrible. Suicide is a tragedy. If you are struggling, if you are struggling mentally, emotionally, reach out, get help. And maybe you're not struggling, but you know somebody who you think, you know what, I haven't heard from them in a while. I'm going to just send them a text. I'm going to give them a call. I'm going to drop over. Hey, can I just come grab coffee with you? I just want to know how you're doing. Reach out. Reach out for help. Reach out to those who might need help. 
Suicide is not the unpardonable sin, but it is an incredible tragedy and a waste. You are valuable, you are loved, and you have purpose, even if you can't see it. Other people maybe don't say it, but they live like it, and they'll say, oh, you know, the real unpardonable sin is divorce. And you know what? You can never do anything now because you're divorced. And let me tell you again, the divorce is terrible. It is tragic. It's one of these things that our society is trying to say is just, you know, it's just a thing that happens. But we know all the statistics. Talk to an educator. How does that go for a, a child growing up in, in a divorced household? It's, statistically, it's not good. It's not the unpardonable sin. It's not. And, and I, have, I think the last several weddings I've done have been people who were divorced. And they recognize it's not good, but they're now walking forward in the grace and the power of God. Praise the Lord. So what is the unpardonable sin then? Jesus said it is the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. It is speaking against the Holy Spirit. And how does that work? The Holy Spirit of God is with every person saying, Jesus, 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 come to Jesus, repent of your sins, turn over your life to Jesus, surrender yourself to Jesus. And every person will have to choose, do I say yes or no to that call from the Spirit of God? And if I say no, 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 that will not be forgiven. There is no sin that you or I could ever do that would keep us out of heaven. Think about the things that you have done and you feel guilt over. Think about the things that someone else has done that you cannot find it in your heart to forgive. It can and will be forgiven. There are murderers who are free and innocent before God because of Jesus' death and resurrection. There are people who are bigoted and racist who have repented and God has healed them of that hate in their hearts. There are people who were just so prideful and stubborn and pig-headed and then they surrender their life to Jesus and Jesus changes them. There are people like me who thought they were better than everyone else because they were so religious. And God humbles them. He humbled me. He's humbling me. Praise the Lord. But if somebody keeps saying no, 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 to God the Holy Spirit reaching out and saying, come to Jesus. That cannot be forgiven because in that action, we reject the healing, cleansing, forgiving work that Jesus did on the cross. So anyone who says, oh, I'm, you know, I'm part of the kingdom of God. Anyone who says, oh, I'm a Christian, why? Well, I was confirmed in the church. I have a lot of Lutheran friends. That's not knocking Lutherans at all, but I have a lot of Lutheran friends from back in the day in Seattle, and uh, they'd get confirmed. They were all like, go to Rock of Ages Lutheran Church down in Ballard. They'd get confirmed, and then other than maybe Christmas or Easter, they'd never darken the door of the church again. Somebody says, well, I'm a church member. Or somebody says, well, I went through a confirmation class. Or somebody says, I've done this, or I've given this much, or I've went on this many mission trips. So what? As I said before, there are many people who have seen the work of God in their lives but never surrendered their lives to Jesus. They know God, but they don't know Jesus. And that's the deal breaker. 
So Jesus is clarifying. He's declared himself Messiah. He's confirmed his power. He's declared the coming of the kingdom of God. And he has warned those who are rejecting him and his kingdom. And now he's clarifying who has citizenship. And first he says, it is anyone, anyone who blasphemes the Holy Spirit and will not accept Jesus. And then the chapter ends with this very interesting story. Verse 46, it says, while Jesus was still talking to the crowd, his mothers and brothers stood outside wanting to speak to him. So he's inside a house or some kind of large space. And the crowd is huge. And somebody tells him, verse 47, your mother and your brothers are standing outside. They're wanting to speak with you. And in verse 48, Jesus replied, who is my mother? Who is my brother? Pointing to his disciples, he said, here's my mother. Here are my brothers. For whoever does The will of the Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my mother and my sister and my brother. His brothers, we are told in other parts of the Gospels, did not believe until after Jesus' resurrection. Mary believed it first. We know that when Jesus was born. And then uh, at the wedding in Cana, which is talked about in Luke's gospel. And then, for a while, for a season, she did not seem to believe. It's about 10, 15 years ago that I realized that in Christian terms, church language, we would say Mary was backslidden, that she had believed once and she had slid back into disbelief. And by the time Jesus died on the cross, we see that uh, she had returned to belief in him. But at this point, she did not. Why are his brothers and his mother outside? You know, they could have forced their way through. You ever seen a mom do that? It doesn't matter what culture you're in. You know, we started watching that Miss Marvel show on uh, on Disney Plus. And, uh, you know, her mom is this uh, Pakistani lady. And and I was like, Pakistani mom, Italian mom, Jewish mom, you know, tiger mom from China. (laughs) It doesn't matter, right? Like, I recognize these moms, and if you got a tiger mom of any kind, right, they are going to get through that crowd no matter what. His mother and his brothers are standing outside waiting for him. They're waiting for him and saying, come on out. Other gospels tell us that they had come to take him home. They thought he was getting too big for his britches, like my grandma used to say. They thought he had just, he's crazy. He thinks he's the Messiah. Jesus says they're not getting any special treatment. Mary needed Jesus not just to be her son, but to be her Savior and her Lord. Mary needed her sins forgiven. His brothers, half-brothers obviously, half-sisters, the sons and daughters of Joseph and Mary after Jesus was born, they needed him to save them. And there are those in the church who will stand and and claim faith. And on the day of judgment, Jesus will say, depart from me, I never knew you. And because they think they have some connection that they don't have, because they don't do the will of God, because they aren't submitted to the will of God, because they haven't had their heart changed, their mind transformed by the power of God the Holy Spirit. And so this morning, Jesus declares his kingdom. 
He is confirmed and is confirming his kingdom. He is warning us against rejecting his kingdom. And he is clarifying how we enter his kingdom as citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And it is only through faith in Jesus Christ. It's only through faith in Jesus Christ. Together as a church family, we are walking in the path of Jesus saying, Lord, show us how to do the will of your Father so that we may live in your victory. And that invitation is to you and to all who would believe. Cry out to Jesus. He hears you this morning. God bless you. We'll see you this week in the small groups and the other podcasts, and we'll be back together next Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m.